We're going to be looking at four small words uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, I have a working theory. That is that the larger the word, the less it impacts you. Uh, Take, for example, uh, a word. I I didn't know uh, when I was starting this when Lynette and John were going to be here. But uh, the word agamaglobulinemia is a word. That's a big word. That it affects about one in... uh, 250,000 men, pretty much exclusively men. It means that you don't produce antibodies, right? Big word. Someone thought up this word that affects, you know, very few people. 700 people, uh, men, uh, unfortunately get this in the country. Women, you're all right. Uh, you're safe. Uh, what, what is it that Michael has? I, I can't even pronounce that. The, the, do you remember you used to wrap, wrap that thing off? I, was, I, I know, I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> You used to, oh, man. You, okay, so we'll check back with there. But he's got one that's like 10 miles long, right? And, and, and uh, if I remember correctly, I remember the story that, that he's in medical journals, right? Her, her adopted son for a, for a deformity that he has uh, from, from birth, right? I mean, that's extremely rare, and it's like twice as long as that word. Uh, but, but why, why, I was thinking about this, why, why make these big words for things that affect small people? And I, I think it's largely just because they, you know, they don't have to use it that often, so they can make up a big fancy word. I mean, think of the w- things that affect you all the time. You have a cold, one syllable. Right? Uh, you get a flu, one syllable, right? Because, because I think doctors realize I don't want to be saying this $10 word all day long. I think that's, that's simply the reason. I mean, imagine if you went into a doctor and he was, you know, you had something pretty common and he said, yeah, you need some uh, gamma-globulinemia fluid, you know, s- syrup. So, and he had to say that 500 times. You'd say, why don't we just shorten this up to one word, one, one syllable. But the words that, that are small, they impact us. And we're going to be looking at four extremely small words. They're as small about a word as you can get, two letters. We're discussing today a fundamental word. <clears throat> it's in most of the sentences you say. I've said it a number of times already. So common that we don't even think of how to, to define it. In fact, <clears throat> we had a, famously a president who, who wondered about the definition of this particular word. He asked us, hello, there we go. He asked the famous question, what the definition of is, is. Well, he's not the first to ask this question, or the, the concept of this question. About 2,000 years ago, someone else had another political leader, had the same existential argument with himself. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting, so that I am not delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Pilate said to him, so you're a king? Jesus said, no. You say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate says to him, what is 
truth. We could just shorten this up. Really, it's the same idea. Pilate said to him, what is? That's really the, the idea. What is the definition of is? What is, is is the concept of reality. We don't even think of the definition because it is. It is what is. So, <clears throat> let's look first at Pilate's conundrum before we get to this bigger concept. Pilate has a dilemma. Pilate is a part of the Roman structure. In the Roman structure, we first think of, this is the picture we think of, right? That's what you think of. And that is one of, <clears throat> excuse me, one of two great concepts that a Roman had of himself. It was his ability to keep the peace. All right? The Roman peace. Pax Roma. And that was a part of their identity. Strength. He's been charged with keeping the peace in Palestine. Not a difficult thing to do. All you've got to do is manage people who are, you know, constantly trying to rebel against your nation. Nothing hard about that. Well, if you've got these soldiers, not too hard, right? But he's got another dilemma, and, and we don't often think of Rome as being this, but the other great thing that the Rome had was the Senate. Rome had an idea. that They looked at, at history this way. The Jew gave us law, the concept of a written law. That, that was Jewish. Right? I mean, there's Hammurabi's code. There's, there's, there's some others. But, but as, as far as a complex written code, the Hebrew law is the first. Well, the Greeks gave us democracy, which is kind of a, a governmental concept. Okay, that's wonderful. But the Romans thought they excelled because they gave us a government structure that could, that could manage an empire that extended over three continents. See, this is a, a, a self-image that Pilate has. And so Pilate has this problem. He says, justice. So he's wrestling with this truth, with these two, two ideas. He's supposed to keep the peace, but not at all costs. The Romans prided themselves on justice. And I know when we read through the Bible, we see a lot of injustices in Roman. We don't really necessarily get the idea that, that they were big on justice, but they were. He's trying to do this. And we see this throughout this trial. After this, he comes back and he says, I, I find nothing wrong in this man. He's desperately trying to let Jesus go while keeping the peace. And he has this dilemma. And the Jews aren't going to allow him to accomplish. Thank you. Uh, he's he's uh, a little mood lighting up here. Um, but he, he's trying to accomplish both of these, these things. And, and as I say, the Jews are not going to let him do that. One of these is going to have to go. And that's when he gets into this idea. He's in a crisis. And in a crisis, people start wrestling. What is truth? I mean, what is really is? You know? it, 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 do I really have to keep one of these? He's looking for the easy way out. And that's when we get into this existentialism right, that, that Pilate and, and others have wrestled with. So we're going to be looking at this concept, first of all, from two sides. One is what we call subjective morality. It has a lot of names, situation, ethics. Uh, it goes by a lot of different names throughout history. Uh, to look at this, and get a, a view of this, 
want to talk about art. I know that sounds weird, um, but we do have to talk about art because it's in, in our society, art is where this concept comes from. Uh, there, we're going to look at three, I mean briefly, not, we're not going to go through a, a long sermon about art, okay? Realism was what art was for thousands of years. The last great realist painter you all know. Norman Rockwell was the last realist painter. What is realism? Realism was when you look at something painted, you know the story, right? Every one of us sees the painting and we all know the message, right? You all know what it means. We all looked at that and got the exact same idea. You can't avoid it. That's realism. Realism asks the question, what did the painter intend? Hmm. Does that sound familiar if we took out the word painting and started applying that to other things? You see where this branches off. Well, around 1900, just before, just after, somewhere, people started to say, well, we don't want that. I don't want to ask the question, what did the painter, I don't care what the painter intended. And this is why, not too long, after, it starts phasing out slowly, but, but by the 40s and 50s, 60s, by that point in time, it's going to be about done. People are interested in something else. And so we come to something called modernism. They, what's this modern? Modernism, we, this is a, another famous, this is one of the most famous. Anybody know who that is? Picasso. Picasso. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. We now ask a different question. How did you know that? No. <laughs> we want to ask the question, not what did the painter intend, but we ask the question, what does this mean to me? See, I become the center. I become the focal point. Not the person who did the painting. As you notice, there's a space there. What comes after modernism? They didn't think about that when they named it. They didn't, maybe they didn't know that things were going to progress past the 1900s. I don't know. But, but some groups of people said, wait a minute, that's, that's a very inconsistent. How, how in the world can someone paint a thing and I take a meaning from it that's other than what they wanted? That, that's, that's absurd. That, that makes no sense. So they said, we want to be consistent. And so they said, we want to be postmodern. We want to be, I guess, they, like you say, what's after modern? Uh, it's after modern. I don't know. We don't have another word. So that's what they said. <clears throat> the great thing about postmodern art, by the way, is you can you can crop it and uh, and fit it into your spot, and and you have no idea if it's right or wrong. This is actually a really wide wide one, but it, this fit there good. So uh, who got, who cares? Because the idea of postmodernism is there is no thought, there is no meaning. It just is. I just did this. Enjoy it. Pay me lots of money for it. It's postmodernism. And this is, you kind of look at that, and don't you see society? Don't you see beyond art 
criticism. I've never been to an art museum in my life. But, but can't you see the development that, that these thoughts infected the world beyond looking at pieces of paintings on a wall? No longer do we ask what the founders intended, right? It's, it's a living, breathing document. Right? This infects all of society. And it goes beyond, it goes to any area that you can, and it has infected religion as well. And Christianity. And that's where we want to talk about. Most people in our culture espouse either modernism or postmodernism. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. See, what is truth? You have, that, that's modernism, by the way. Modernism is kind of like my truth. is my truth and your truth. Postmodernism is different. Postmodernism is really bizarre. You have no right to tell me what to do. Because there are no absolutes. There's nothing. Which is, by the way, a self-contradictory position. Because if I have no right to tell you what to do, you have no right to tell me not to tell you what to do. Right? You just made an absolute statement. So it kind of dies its own death. Well, what are the reasons for this? What are the motives that this develops? I think it's kind of obvious, but, but maybe there we, talked, we just concluded a series talking about how, how people are sincere. There, there might be some sincere motives. There might be some insincere motives. Let's look at some of these. Uh, motives. Uh, first of all, we would talk about precaution, and, and this is not exclusive to this, these four. I'm just going to list four, and I think we'll, we'll cover a good spread of people in the world. What if I have believed something that's not true? Well, there are implications to that, aren't there? So I'll, I'll take the precaution, and I'm just going to believe that there's nothing that's really absolute truth. That there is, it's all subjective, right? Um, we got here somehow. Someone somehow decided that life should be lived like it was a Pablo Picasso, right? That's an absurd way to live life. To, to live, I mean, to, to have your life look like that. But that's basically what's happening in society: is is people's life is completely abstract and and, and without reason. So there has to be motive. So, and so the first one is, so we talk about precaution. But there's another one. Freedom. Oh. There, sweetie, you don't have to worry about coloring in the lines. Right? Well, that's nice in a kid's coloring book. But when we start taking that idea to lifestyle, lines, we don't need them. It, it gets pretty sloppy. And people simply, it's, it's easy to live life with no lines. Okay, they said there's some lines, but those are arbitrary constructs. And, and I don't need to observe those. And so I have freedom. I don't even have to have the discussion because it doesn't exist. Right. Let's talk about some nice things. Like fairness. Some people want to be fair. If I were to assume that I alone arrived at truth, or, or I was a part of a group that arrived at truth, 
then I would be necessarily excluding a lot of people who don't believe like me, wouldn't I? That, that's a necessary conclusion. And that does not seem fair to the rest of the people who do not believe like I do. And so there are a lot of people that conclude then that it's just it's just a fair thing to do to pre- pretend that there are no lines. Or, or that they can come up with their own truth. That's fair. Why well, everybody's fair. You're fair, I'm fair. We all get along. And then there's niceness. Without regards necessarily to fairness, just telling people they're wrong doesn't seem nice. It's not nice. You're wrong. That's not nice. Be nice. And so it makes relationships pleasant, doesn't it? If we don't handle uncomfortable topics and we don't say that people need to change, and we, if all those things, if you can just have your truth and I have my truth, we can all get along. Can't we all just get along? I want to talk about absolute truth. The world considers spirituality to be an important part of life. I mean, even beyond Christians, the word spiritual, very spiritual, I'm very spiritual. That's a part of conversation, right? Virtually everywhere, unless you're too busy to think about that part of your life. That, and there almost always comes a point in every person's life where they start thinking about that. In some terms, one way or another. Right? Now, obviously for us, who are gathered based on a religious idea, we all have automatically assumed that, that something spiritual is important because we're all here. But beyond this building, it's important to people. And the word spiritual is, is believed by people who don't even believe in God at all. They understand the concept of a, of a part of their life that is more than physical. And we accept it in most areas. We, expe- we, we accept the concept of absolute truth in most areas. Let me give you a couple of examples. You accept this in math. Don't you? I read an article by some guy from Harvard or somewhere about how 2 plus 2 equals 5. Well, that's ridiculous. No, it doesn't. Then it was kind of a convoluted argument. He wasn't even trying to prove the thing he was trying to prove if you boiled down the argument. But we accept 2 plus 2 is 4, don't we? We base our lives on it. I'll give you an illustration in just a second. We'll come back to that. We know when it's wrong. We understand basic concepts of math. We accept that. You accept it in physics. The laws of thermodynamics. Just the phrase, the law of thermodynamics. That's a law. We accept it. We do science based on it. Experiments based on these ideas. Right? Something cannot come from nothing. That's the first law of thermodynamics. That's an absolute. That's a law. And we 
accept it. What about justice? We all accept justice. That person deserves to die. That's an absolute statement. We all know we can list some names, right? And we can go, that per- we're in Wisconsin. Jeffrey Dahmer, that person deserved to die. Right? Can we, all, we, we all recognize certain absolutes when it comes to justice. Now, maybe some would go, eh, well, I mean, that's your truth. But, but we understand that justice has a concept of absolutes. And we accept it in areas of our lives. Let's back up through that and, and look at that personally. Because this, this whole idea of my truth, your truth. Let's, let's look at how absolute we understand this affects our lives. You had a salary. Uh, let's say you get, uh, we'll do easy math. You work 40 hours. You get $20 an hour. You go in at the end of the week. You expect an $800 check. Right? The boss says, eh, that's your truth. No, it ain't. I think 20 times 40 is 600. No, you don't. Absolutes. Math. I accept it in my own personal life. Physics. None of us has ever gotten out of the bed in the morning, ever. This never happened. And you grabbed onto something thinking that gravity might be going sideways today. Right? You ought, you, without, without even thinking a conscious thought, you just... Right out of your bed. Total faith. It's going to work every time. It's an absolute. It's a law. You don't even think about it. We accept it in my own personal life. Safety. Want me to give you an absolute belief in morality? Let me point a gun at your head. You will believe in absolute justice and morality and ethics on my part. Things I should absolutely do or not do. We'll all come to the immediate same conclusion, won't we? Because we recognize absolutes in important areas of our lives. And what did we begin saying? The spiritual is an important area of our life. And so, though it may look different, the spiritual will be governed by absolutes because it is an important part of humanity. John chapter 3. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and his spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. I want to look at something interesting. I've I've highlighted or emboldened a, a couple of words. The flesh is. It just is. Like, truth is. What is truth? It is. 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 The flesh is. It exists. Spirit is. Or is spirit. That which is born of the spirit is. You don't see it. It may operate on different laws, but it operates on laws. It is. It exists. So it has to have 
absolute laws. Absolute laws always govern what is. I can no longer ha- no more have a, a separate rules of spirituality that affect my spirit than I can have a separate law of gravity that operates just for me. It doesn't work that way. There must be an absolute. And that's not nice. But it is. The physical and the spirit have different existences. So they have different laws. But logically, there must be an objective, a a type of a principle... And whatever those are, whatever we discover them to be, that's what they are. Isaiah said, come let us reason together. Come let us reason. This is a thought. This is a challenge. When... When God sat down and, and, and... communicated with man. He said, let's have a logical discussion together. Let's reason. Why? Now, he's talking in that passage in Isaiah about about a, a spiritual idea. Come, let us reason together on a spiritual topic. He says, let's let's talk about some spiritual laws. Here's one. Though your sins be as scarlet, I shall wash them white as snow. This is a spiritual idea, spiritual thought, something that governs me, but it's a law. I will do it. No one else will do it. That's a law. Come let us reason together. That's the challenge. To to leave here today and to say... I have to use my mind and to wrap around some things that are abstract and they're, they're difficult. Abstract doesn't mean it's ab- not absolute, that it's, it's subjective. Those are two different words. That they mean two different things. Abstract just means that they're, they're not concrete. They're not physical. But something that's, as John says, just because it's, it's not physical doesn't mean it's not absolute. It is. And it operates on principles. And then these are the spiritual principles. And that's what this is. These are the spiritual absolutes. And they work. When we observe them, you can trust them every bit as getting out of bed in the morning. And God applies the concept of logic to the abstract. It's important. Sin is metaphysical. It's, it's What is sin? Right? Well, it is. Sin is. And so there are laws that govern it. There are a lot of things that are. And regardless of, of where you are at in life, there are principles. A, a person dealing with the existence of God, struggling with this concept, it's difficult. What about this and what about that? And they have lots of stuff going on in it. I don't understand it. 
There are absolutes and we can look at them. A person who, okay, I accept the existence of God, but I'm not sure that, that I accept all of the things that the Bible says. We can talk about that too. These are absolutes. But they work. Wherever you are at, on this continuum of, uh, between knowing nothing and knowing everything, which we're all somewhere down there, right? there's a, a way to progress forward. There's a way to learn more and to understand more. To enter into a discussion with God. And to learn something more. How to govern my life. Come let us reason together. Then I close.